As I said earlier, we are in the season of Advent. Advent simply means coming. And so during this season of preparation for coming, of preparation for Christmas, we talk about two comings. The first is the first coming of Jesus, Christmas, when he came, when God took on flesh and entered into this life and was born and lived and died for us. But in the season of Advent, we also talk about the second coming. And it's this truth, this thing that we celebrate, this reality that God will come again in Jesus Christ to make all things right. And so we heard about that in the passage read from the Gospel of Mark. We hear about Jesus coming again, and that's the end of the world, the, the eschaton is the fancy word for saying that. But when God comes and makes all things right, he began that process in the first coming, and he'll fill it, he'll finish it with the second coming of Jesus. And so in Advent, we think about both those things, and we hold those two things in tension. We remember and celebrate the first Christmas, the first coming, but we also keep in mind that Jesus will come again, and we live in between those two times. We live in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. And we live in a time of expectation and a time of hope. And so we'll be doing a series through the four weeks of Advent, which I've entitled Tear Open the Heavens. And it's borrowed from the passage in, we read from Isaiah chapter 64. It's language of rend open the heavens or tear open the heavens. It's a picture of God splitting the sky of throwing open the doors of heaven, of tearing the fabric of time and space and entering in to the world in which we live. But it's also a statement, a sentiment, an idea, a thought about our desire for God to come and make a difference. The prayer we'll look at today from Isaiah chapter 64 is exactly that, and that's the feeling that many of us experience, this desire that things are not right, and we want God to burst in on the scene. We want the sky to be ripped open. We want God to come in and do something different. So we'll be looking at this passage from Isaiah 64. So first we have to ask ourselves, who is this Isaiah that was writing? Isaiah wrote or really prophesied about 700 years before Jesus. And so it was a time when the nation of Israel was divided in two. And so there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And I talked earlier about the confusion with Israel, the modern nation state, and Israel, the people of God. Well, it gets even confusing when you're reading the Bible because the term Israel sometimes refers to the entire nation and sometimes refers to just the northern nation when it's split. And so you think, well, how do I know? You kind of have to pay attention to what's going on. So, but at this time, the people of God, the nation of Israel, were split in two. There had been a civil war, and so there was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom, around the time that Isaiah was prophesying, was conquered by Assyria and taken off into captivity or into exile. And Isaiah is prophesying, is speaking to the people of the southern kingdom, and he's warning them that the same thing could happen to them. He's telling them that if they don't do what God wants them to do, if they don't live as God's witnesses to the world, if they don't live a faithful life, that there will be consequences for it. And the consequences are exile, of being taken off. And so Isaiah writes about that, but if you read through, Isaiah is one of the longest, in some ways one of the more complicated books in the Bible. And so the first section of Isaiah is kind of this lead up to that, and it's telling the people of God, you need to choose. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust the nations? Are you going to put your hope 
in who God is, or are you going to put your hope in Egypt and their armies to defend you from Babylon? And then as the book progresses, we see that the people of God, and this doesn't come as a surprise, don't listen. They continue in their rebellion. They continue in their apostasy. They continue in their idolatry. And the kingdom of Babylon comes in the year 586, conquers the southern kingdom, and takes them off into captivity. And so the later chapters of Isaiah really portray this time of when they've been taken into captivity. And then this miraculous act of grace in which God brings his people out of exile back to their land. And so we see this picture of that. And then the final chapters of Isaiah are kind of a lesson to the people, a reminder of this grace that God has shown them and a reminder that their purpose, their calling in life is to be a witness to God. So we have this big picture of Isaiah to say, trust in God, not in the nations. The people fail to listen. They go into exile. But God in his grace rescues them, brings them out of exile, and then reminds them, I rescued you by grace, but I'm calling you to live as witnesses to the world. And so the passage we're reading today is a part of that section, and it's really a part of a bigger section. And so one of the confusing things when we read our Bibles is most of our Bibles, when we read them, have chapters and verses. When Isaiah was writing the scroll, when Mark was writing his gospel, there weren't chapters and verses. And sometimes those chapters and verses fall into odd places. And those, one of those happens today because really the passage we read is in the middle of a longer prayer. So if you have your Bibles and you're looking back and you turn back a page to Isaiah chapter 63, it's the beginning of a prayer. And so in Isaiah 63, the prayer begins in Isaiah's reflecting and he's reflecting this prayer of the people just kind of remembering the good old days. He's just saying hey, things used to be really good. He's saying, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to praise according to all the Lord has done for us, the many good things he has done for Israel. And he's beginning this prayer and just reflecting back on all the good things that God has done. Just like we just did for Thanksgiving. He thinks back on the good things and he's particularly remembering that God had rescued the people from slavery in Egypt. And all the incredible and miraculous things. So he's beginning this time of prayer, this reminiscing. But then he goes into that stage of, but things aren't so good right now. Because now, this is when the people of God are coming out back from exile in Babylon. So imagine you as an, the entire nation, the entire people of God, or most of the leaders and, and the elites, the, um, the rich, the powerful, had been all taken off into captivity. They're in Babylon, and then they return to their nation. Well, when they return, the temple has been destroyed. The nation is in shambles. And so they're thinking back of all the stories they had heard. Imagine if we were lived in the United States and a foreign nation came in and conquered us and we were taken off into captivity and then we returned back to the United States and we discovered that Washington, D.C. had been burned to the ground and, and we were sitting around, we were telling stories and maybe this was several generations later and our great-great-grandchildren are saying, Oh, I remember hearing the stories of when this city stood and how amazing it was. And that's the people of God. They're remembering the temple and all the good times and the good glory. It's like we do sometimes, don't we? We think back like, oh, you remember how good things used to be? And sometimes we go through a bad time and we look back and we remember the good and we're entering into this time of prayer. And that's what the people of God are doing. They're saying, oh, 
things used to be so good and now look at the mess that the world is in. And we understand that. We understand that things aren't so good now, right now. Maybe we're looking desperately for a job. We're unhappy with the job we have. We have an adult child who's just not making good choices. We have a loved one whose body or maybe their mind is failing and we sit by and we feel helpless. Maybe there's some disease that's affecting our own body. There's all these things that are going on and this feeling of we've lost the life that we used to have. And so then we cry out like the people of God and say, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear them open and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And there's this great picture of the sky splitting open and God coming down and the mountains beginning to tremble. This is what God's people do in times of trouble. One writer talks about that and says, one of our standard prayers is just, help! I mean, that's, that's the kind of, we get that. I mean, it's, a, it's an instinct that in some sense, when we come to know who God is, one of our first instincts when things aren't going well, we cry out, help. We cry out, tear open the heavens, God. Break in. Come from where you are. And we imagine heaven not as some displaced, but as just this dimension. God is here present, but he's, we don't sense him. And we want that, that separation, that gap, that distance that we feel between us to split open and the mountains to tremble. And so they're imagining this picture of the people of God remembering when God had come down on Mount Sinai and there was lightning and there was thunder and the ground was shaking. I mean, if you can imagine a picture where the mountains are trembling, that's what God wanted. And to come like a fire where there's this fire that's lit suddenly and this picture of fire is this purifying force. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has this incredible vision where he enters into the throne room of God and he feels that he's unclean, that he's not fit for the job that God has called him to. And God sends a seraph, one of these incredible creatures, and he takes a burning coal and he touches Isaiah's lips and the fire purifies Isaiah. And this is exactly what Isaiah and this prayer is speaking to right now, this desire to be purified. It's this cry of God, do something. Do something with this world in which we live. And it's the type of prayer that we shout out. You know, it's the type of prayer that comes from our lips when we see thousands dying in Gaza. It's the type of prayer that comes to our lips when we see political corruption. It's the type of prayer that comes from our lips when we see politicians who lie and seek nothing but power. It's the type of prayer that comes from our lips when we see famine. The type of prayer that comes from our lips when we see earthquakes. The type of prayer that comes from our lips when we see disease. The type of prayer that we shout out when we see child abuse and abuse in the church. It's this type of prayer that comes from our lips. But we don't want just a light show. We don't want just the mountains to tremble. We want something more. So he says, as when twigs, when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. And so you hear that prayer of make yourself known to the enemy. Make yourself known to our enemy. Or we could put it where, this way. God, take care of those people. All those people who are causing the problem. And we understand this. And so then he goes on in this prayer. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. It's this memory of saying, God has done incredible things in the past. 
and things we didn't expect. Isaiah's thinking back to the way that God brought the people out of slavery in this incredible way. He parted the seas and took them to Sinai and brought them into this land of promise and conquered nations and caused walls to fall. And we can think back to an unexpected way that God sent his son Jesus into the world. He came in poverty, he came in secrecy, and he lived a life among us. And who would have thought that that's the way that God would have saved us is by offering himself by death on a cross. And then he goes on, he says, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him saying, there's no other God like you. There's no other God who acts for his people. And he says, for those who wait. We're going to talk a little bit, a few minutes about waiting. But he's saying, God did incredible things then, and we want him to do incredible things now for us. Just like he did incredible things when he sent his son Jesus, we want him to do incredible things now. That God's miraculous acts, God's miraculous ways of coming to the world rescue aren't just something from 2,000 years ago. That's what we believe. We believe this isn't something. We don't sit and we tell these stories like, oh, God did stuff thousands of years ago, but God doesn't do anything now. We believe instead that God still does things and we expect him to, we want him to, and it says that God will do things for those who wait. And so he says it this way. He says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? And so there's this picture of waiting. And so we heard about it in the Gospel of Mark. And there was this parable that Jesus tells. What of a, of a servant, set of servants whose master goes away. And the picture, the story is, the servants don't know when the master is going to come back. So if you were a servant... And your master said, you've got to be ready when I come back. I want the lights on. I want the house clean. I want everything all ready to go when I come back. And the master leaves. Would you say, well, I'm just going to take a nap. I'm going to hang out. No, what would you do? You'd be ready, right? You'd be watching. You'd be sitting at the window making sure maybe you'd take turns if you were a group of servants, but you'd be constantly on the watch. You'd be making sure you were always ready, that you were, and that's kind of the sense of waiting. You're waiting, but you're not just sitting in the lazy boy waiting, right? You're getting and you're actively waiting. And this is what Isaiah's talking about with active waiting. So John Oswald, the commentator, says it this way. He says, thus, to wait for the Lord is to live the covenant life. And by the covenant, he means the covenant given by God to his people. To commit the future into God's hands by means of living a daily life that shows that we know of his ways of integrity, honesty, faithfulness, simplicity, mercy, generosity, and self-denial. And he goes on, the person who does not do these things may be waiting for something, but he or she is not waiting for the Lord. So in some sense, there's a sense of waiting for things, but there's a way to wait and a way not to wait. And the way to wait is this kind of act of waiting, of being ready for things. And so we think of waiting but it's not the waiting where we maybe were waiting for, example, last night when I ordered some pizza. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'll get on my app and I'll order my pizza and I'll pick it up and it's supposed to be ready at 5.30. 
because it's convenient that I know exactly when I said, well, I got to the store at 5.30 and I pull up my app, which tracks, the, it's amazing. It's like, it tells you like what's happening with the pizza. My pizza wasn't even in the oven yet. <laughs> it was like 6.10 when I finally walked out of there. I was waiting. But there was also this sense of waiting, like, is it, am I actually going to get pizza? I mean, there were several other, and I wasn't the only one in this situation. There were a lot of other people there who were waiting and waiting. And several of them, I think one or two, walked out. And the sense of waiting of like, well, it's a waiting, but you're not sure it's actually going to happen. Maybe you're waiting for a promotion. You're waiting for someone to call you. You're waiting for something to happen in your life. And that's one kind of waiting. But this is a different kind of the waiting. This is a waiting where we know that it's going to happen. So we will wait for God to act. We know God is going to act. We may not know when or how, but we know it will happen. It's not a waiting of if, it's a waiting of when. And so this is what's going on. But this is where it gets a little tricky for the people of God. Because they're waiting, and they've cried out for help, and they're supposed to wait in faithfulness. Well, what does faithfulness look like? It means living the way God has called them to live. But there's a little problem. They realize they haven't been. And so they say it this way. They say, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. They know they've gone into exile because of their sins. And listen to this. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And so there's this description of them of how they've been acting. So God has told them, wait in faithfulness and I'll show up. And then they look at themselves and they're saying, we're not being very faithful. In fact, they've gotten so far into despair, it says, no one calls in your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sin. They've gotten to the point where they're not even sure about praying. They've almost given up on things completely. Now, as we think about this, I want to add a caveat that not all of our sins, not all of our problems are a result of our sins. I want to make that clear that things that come into our lives, there are things that happen in our lives. Not all of them are a direct result or some consequence of our own sin. There's sin in the world. There's the brokenness of the world we live in. There's lots of different reasons. But what Isaiah is asking us to consider is when we cry out for God, when we say, God, deal with those people that we sometimes miss the mark too. That Jesus didn't just come because of the sins of other people, but he came for our sins. That if we call out for God to make things right, that we're also a part of what is wrong. And so it's a call of Isaiah to reflect on this, to think about what it looks like. And now we don't like to think about sins at Christmas time especially at Christmas time, right? It's like, oh, come on. Do we have to talk about this right now, Pastor? This is the, the season of joy, the season of happiness and, and lightheartedness, and we're lighting candles, we're celebrating. But it's a part of what we need to remember. It's a part of what we need to remember about who we are. We need to remember it and we acknowledge it, that we fall short and that we confess those sins. But there's something, I don't know if the word's ironic about it or some way in which recognizing our own sins, recognizing our own failures deepens or heightens the joy of Christmas. I mean, if we were all just really good people to begin with and Jesus came for us and be like, yeah, that's pretty exciting. 
but the fact that Jesus came for us when we were in rebellion, that Jesus came for us when we refused to believe, when Jesus came for us in the midst of our unfaithfulness, faithfulness, it makes the joy, the celebration that much greater. And maybe it causes us to think about what would 2023 have been like if we had confessed our sins, if we had asked for God to not remember those. So in all this, as we're thinking through this, as Isaiah is doing this, one of the things that he's reminding of, so we have this situation. Imagine the situation. People are in trouble. They say, God, come to us. Help us out. And God says, I'll come to those who wait. Waiting looks like what? Faithful, Faithful living. And then we have the problem, but we don't live faithfully. So what's going to happen? What's something called grace, where God comes, and so in the midst of it, this prayer, it says, yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. And so there's this good news that comes out of that when the chasm seems too deep, when all hope seems to be lost, God is our maker, who can reform and remake us. And this is the prayer of Advent. This is what the Advent season is all about, that we need redemption. We feel unworthy. And we cry out, and we're assured that God is what we need, and He will come because of His grace. And so I'm going to offer several invitations as we think about and put these things all together. The first invitation is to cry out for God to come. And Isaiah is not saying to not do that. This is something we need to do. We remember that God sent his son Jesus, that he did something miraculous. He did something incredible. He did something unexpected. So whatever is going on in your life, whatever problems you are facing, or maybe the problems you see in your family, in your neighborhood, in our country, in the world around us, call out to God. Say, God, tear open the sky. God, rip the heavens open. God, throw the door open. Tear the fabric of time and space and enter into this world and do something about it. Cause the nations to tremble. Make the mountains shake. Light the world on fire and make a difference. God invites us to do that. Second invitation is to wait faithfully. Wait faithfully to God, for God to act. That means to live a faithful life. But we've just said we don't do that very well. Not on our own we don't, but we do it through him. And so in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians we read that. Where Paul writes, he says, He will also keep you firm. He meaning God. So in other words, who's going to keep us faithful? Is it our own self-effort? Is it our own power? Is it our pastor? Is it the Bible teacher we listen to? Is it our, our mom or our dad? Who's going to keep us faithful? God is. He will keep you firm to the end. Not just for a little while. Not just until you get yourself back on your feet. Not just until you can do it on your own. But until the end so that you will be what? Blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, God is faithful. And so the contrast is, we are not faithful, but God is. God who has called you into a fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we can acknowledge too when we fall short in time of confession and before we take communion, the Lord's Supper together, we'll have some time of confession. 
But the last invitation is to keep our eyes fixed on God in the midst of all this. And whatever troubles, whatever you're calling out, whatever you're struggling, to keep our eyes fixed on the God who is like no other. He said, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So let us keep our eyes fixed on him, the one who has done amazing things in the past and will do them again. God is faithful even when we are not. So let us keep our eyes fixed on him. Let us call on him to tear open the heavens that he might come down and make things right. Amen.